Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm David. I'm Monica. And we're continuing our discussion of romance films with the 1953 William Wyler film, Roman Holiday. Paramount News brings you a special coverage of Princess Anne's visit to London, the first stop on her much-publicized goodwill tour of European capital. Audrey Hepburn stars as Anne, a princess of an unnamed nation who is on a diplomatic tour through Europe. The night after arriving in Rome and meeting with a long line of dignitaries and politicians, she has an emotional breakdown from the micromanaged nature of her life. Her doctor administers a sedative, but she sneaks away from her handlers and ventures out into the city. Elsewhere in the city, Joe Bradley, played by Gregory Peck, an American reporter stationed in the Rome bureau of his paper, leaves a late card game and heads home. On his way, he finds Princess Anne lying on a bench. She's heavily affected by the sedatives and appears to be drunk. Joe, not recognizing Anne, reluctantly decides to take her to his apartment so that she can sleep it off. The next morning, Joe wakes up late and rushes off to work. There, he discovers that the embassy has announced Princess Anne has taken ill and will not be keeping her appointments. Seeing a picture of her, he realizes she is the girl in his apartment and rushes home to get a sensational interview, first phoning photographer Irving about the situation. He meets Anne at his apartment, who says her name is Anya Smith, and tries to convince her to stay at the apartment with him. She insists that she must be going and heads out into the city, after borrowing a little money. Anne stops to get a haircut, then grabs an ice cream cone by the Spanish steps where she bumps into Joe, who had been secretly following her. Joe is able to convince her to spend the day with him, and the two go off gallivanting through Rome, all the while being surreptitiously photographed by Irving. That night, they attend a dance, where Secret Service agents identify Princess Anne. They attempt to apprehend her and bring her back to the embassy, but she is able to fight them off with the help of Joe and Irving. Anne and Joe escape into the night and share a tender moment before returning to Joe's apartment. There, Anne says that she must leave and has Joe drop her off near the embassy. The following day, Joe kills the story he was planning and attends a press conference Anne is holding with Irving. While there, Irving gives Anne the photos he had taken of her, instead of selling them, and Anne and Joe exchange a final glance before going their separate ways. So, Monica, this is the second time... Uh, you've seen this film. I'm wondering what, how you felt about it this time and maybe how it compared to your first viewing. I think, and actually I'm, I might, this is the second time I've seen it all the way through. I think I might've been even seen it in bits and blobs before that. Um, but I think I appreciated it more on the second viewing. Maybe because this film is built up a lot. I don't know. I think it's a really good movie. But sometimes I think even really good movies, if the hype is just so much about them, you're invariably going to be disappointed once you see them. Sure. I think um, so. This is my first time seeing it from start to finish. Uh, Like you had mentioned, I caught little bits of it uh, periodically on like Turner Classic or wherever. And I think I, I had the same reaction where, like, I enjoyed it, but I was a little underwhelmed. So just for a little general information about the film, one thing I noticed when when getting into the research, this film has a really 
kind of tremendous pedigree. William Wyler, the director, uh, he won several Oscars and was nominated for for tons. Like if you go to his Wikipedia page, there's just this big long list of the number of Oscars he was nominated for. So he was a director who was held in in really high regard. And I think the the film I recognized off of his filmography was Ben-Hur. Uh, so he directed that as well, I believe, um, several years after this, right? Uh, I think so. Wasn't it 1959 was Ben-Hur? Right. So mm-hmm. I, I guess uh, math, six years <laughs> after <laughs> Roman Holiday, he directed Ben-Hur. The uh, screenplay was co-written by, and the story was written by Dalton Trumbo, uh, who is a really, really big name in, in Hollywood history and kind of in general American history. He was uh, um, called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, which was uh, set up by Joseph McCarthy. So this was uh, the kind of Red Scare, the period at which there was a lot of energy in the American government to kind of suss out supposed uh, communists. And uh, it was especially kind of uh, salacious when they were able to like find communists in, uh, in Hollywood, whether the people were actually affiliated with the communist party was the, in some sense irrelevant, but yeah. So Dalton Trumbo was compelled to appear in front of, um, in front of that committee and refused to testify uh, and so he was blacklisted, but he was able to continue working on films for uh, several years after that, occasionally under pseudonyms, but also other Hollywood writers would front for him, which was a practice of of them applying their names to projects that he did. For Roman Holiday, another Hollywood screenwriter, Ian McClellan Hunter, was listed as the writer here, but he simply allowed Dalton Trumbo to use his name. Dalton Trumbo wrote this. And of course, McClellan Hunter was also later blacklisted. And then I guess as far as his film work, another piece that Dalton Trumbo is possibly most famous for is the Stanley Kubrick film Spartacus. And uh, he also later did a film called Johnny Got His Gun, which wasn't actually super popular when it came out, um, but had kind of a resurgence because Metallica used uh, clips of the film for one of their music videos. And so that that kind of created a renewed interest in seeing this film. And uh, uh, Dalton Trumbo also wrote the book Johnny Got His Gun, but the film was based on, as I understand it. Yes. This film, I thought it was really interesting, actually had two cinematographers listed, uh, which is pretty unusual. In fact, I don't, I can't think of another example off the top of my head. The Lord of the Rings trilogy, there was someone who was a cinematographer specifically for the miniatures that they shot in that film. But that's also, you know, that was such a tremendously large production, right? So it, it kind of... With a few exceptions, this is pretty unusual. Do you think you could explain um, maybe what, briefly, what a, cinemat- a cinematographer does and why, in general, that position is more suited to one person rather than a couple? So basically a cinematographer, and this will be a little difficult because uh, there, there's kind of an uh, elaborate, complicated hierarchy within film production and like on sets and pre-production, post-production, et cetera. 
But in general, the cinematographer is in charge of the look of the film. So the cinematographer works with the camera operators, with the lighting technicians to kind of create the film visually. I guess I couldn't I couldn't say a specific reason for there only being one, but I it's kind of um kind of as you go up the uh like the 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 pyramid, the chain of responsibility, user usually there are fewer people in each position right so you'll have several camera operators but like there's only one director again there are exceptions for this but usually i i think directors more so but cinematographers i think it's kind of seen as more of an uh i suppose an authorial position and kind of a higher up creative position so that a lot of times they'll be reserved for for fewer people and is it like kind of a too many cooks in the kitchen kind of situation if you've got too many people in power. Yeah, I, yeah I'd say that's fair. So the first cinematographer we'll be talking about is Henri Alecan, who's a French cinematographer who also worked on the, the film, I can't remember the exact year, but from the 1940s, uh, Beauty and the Beast, directed by Jean Cocteau, which is very famous specifically for its visuals. He also later on was the cinematographer for Vim Vendors' Wings of Desire. And um, if you've been listening to this podcast, uh, I've talked a lot about New German cinema. And uh, Vim Vendors is one of the directors, uh, one of the more prominent directors from that movement. And Wings of Desire is is a very prominent film from that movement as well. The second cinematographer was uh, Franz Planer, who would later go on to work with Audrey Hepburn on her, possibly her most famous film, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And then just a little bit about the production. So something I, I ran into when doing some research, this was relatively early on in Hollywood filming kind of abroad and in Europe in particular, especially since uh, we're talking about 1953. So it's still, you know, less than a decade from the end of uh, World War II. It, it, it was kind of quite a, an undertaking from a business perspective. There was also some dangers we had pre- previously mentioned with the Red Scare. Uh, it was kind of politically dangerous for directors to go abroad and make films. And it was especially dangerous because uh, the director, Weiler, was Jewish. And that was, you know, there was a very strong element of anti-Semitism in the Red Scare during the, you know, the McCarthy hearings. This was a pretty significant choice. And it seems like Weiler was, was actually very dedicated specifically to shooting the entire film in Rome. He had uh, this really great quote, you can't build me the Colosseum, the Spanish steps i'll shoot the whole picture in rome or else i won't make it from that statement we can kind of hear his vision for the film and i think it's pretty it pretty undeniably appears on screen last week in an affair to remember we talked about the back projection of the water and there were there were a lot of apparently like sound stages that were shot on and here it seems like the main focus was really getting out and filming by these real historical locations there were however some uh, some shots of this that were filmed on sound stages or rather a particular sound stage in Italy called Cina Città and if you follow Italian film that name comes up again and again and again a tremendous number of 
incredible directors have used it. Sergio Leone, Mario Bava, I believe as well. Uh, Dario Argento, I believe Alfred Hitchcock also shot there. So this is a really, really famous uh, film studio. I um, One thing that I had read some time ago was that they were originally going to make this film in color, but then filming abroad just got so expensive, they they weren't able to in the end. So first off, I thought we'd talk a little bit about Audrey Hepburn, who's kind of the undeniable star of this film. A lot of times we'll talk about is, you know, a romance between her and Gregory Peck, but she really steals a show here. This was not her first film, but this was her first American film. During the the opening credits, they actually, they have a title that says Introducing Audrey Hepburn. So really, you know, her first foray into Hollywood film. Uh, and she actually, she won an Oscar for Best Actress for this, which is uh, incredibly impressive. That's a very meteoric rise. And I think part of that is that she she shows a, a great deal of talent here because she she's able to adopt the kind of detached, diplomatic demeanor of like the queenly persona, although she's a princess, right? But she, she's able to engage with that element of her character really well while simultaneously having all the like very relatable experiences. I think part of what engaged audiences with her at the time was that like she felt so kind of human and, and not um, not manufactured, I suppose. So I guess I, I was wondering what your relationship is with Audrey Hepburn, for lack of a better word. I, I love her image more than most other um, actors and actresses from her era. She's still so recognizable today, and I think it's so much because of her, her image. And I've seen a lot of her movies, and to be honest, none of them would be in my group of kind of favorites. But I think this might be the role that I like her in the most. Um, and for comparison, I've seen I've seen her in Breakfast at Tiffany's. I've seen her in Sabrina. I've seen her in My Fair Lady, although it was a long, long time ago, so I don't remember it that well. And then I saw a bunch of her kind of later 60s movies. I also saw her in Funny Face with Fred Astaire. So I've seen a lot of her movies, um, and I think Roman Holiday is probably my favorite of hers. So you've seen a lot more films with her than I have, um, because I've only seen this and Breakfast at Tiffany's and... um, and I suppose My Fair Lady, but I was I was very small when I saw that, so I remember none of it. I guess I was really like I was really impressed with her performance here, but I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to her image. So I saw that she was kind of she was kind of characterized as having a a like quote European look. And I was wondering if you if you had kind of any insight into exactly like what that really means. I guess I know she's also a fashion icon. So so what as specific as you can be, what is it about her appearance that has such a like such iconic weight to it? 
Well, in this movie, she plays royalty, but in her real-life family, she had um, some kind of noble background, apparently. She had a, a mix of, like, Dutch, Austrian, and British lineage. So I think probably something about that background allowed her the ability to kind of play these parts. And also, if we, if we know that about her background, then that would impact the way audiences perceive her, right? You go, you go into the movie and you have that idea in your head already. And I know that casting her in Breakfast at Tiffany's was kind of controversial, I believe, because uh, Truman Capote was not really thrilled with casting her in Breakfast at Tiffany's because he thought her image was too European. He wanted Marilyn Monroe or somebody kind of all-American because in that movie, the whole storyline is a small-town American girl comes to New York City and you kind of discover that about her past as the movie goes on. So having this sophisticated European of kind of noble background, he felt didn't suit the role. But of course, the movie was hugely successful, so whatever. Forgive me if I'm being dense, but I, I guess it makes sense if we as an audience understand her to have like kind of apparently royal lineage. But I guess what do, like what exactly does does the European look mean? Okay, so you can think about it in a couple of ways. Like she her background besides acting was in dance. So Maybe, I'm not sure, I think just the fact that, you know, if you look at so many other Hollywood stars, of course there were a lot of Europeans, but there were also a lot of Americans who were kind of from just everyday towns and, you know, flyover country. I think just knowing that about the actor going in can affect your perception of them. And also, of course, Audrey, she she has like a... Oh, Audrey, because my best friend Audrey, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> she, she has this kind of British-ish accent. She made her Hollywood debut in the 50s, and that was kind of past the point of transatlantic accents being common in movies. So that would have distinguished her from a lot of the other actors. From what, from what I've read, transatlantic accents kind of fell out of favor after the end of World War II when America was the, the savior, the victor or whatever. So it was no longer, it, it was, I guess, just like a, a plainer, like quote-unquote quote standard American accent started to have its own prestige. You no longer had to kind of tread that line between America and Britain to, to sound prestigious, I guess. One thing I um, I did read also there was a there was an article that was arguing part of the reason for her rising fame was that this was a uniquely good time in Hollywood to be uh, to have the like quote unquote European look particularly because Hollywood productions were starting to slow down a little bit so we're still pretty far away from the the death of the studio system at this point this is 1953 so we're still 10-ish years away from that but we are starting to see again Hollywood production slowing down and actually European production beginning to pick up. 
So the, I, I suppose the quote unquote European look is actually becoming more popular even among American audiences during this period. And so that may have contributed to her kind of rise in popularity. I'd also like to talk about the other star in the picture, Gregory Peck, who is also well known for the film Spellbound, The Guns of Navarone, and probably most recognizably as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. So this role was actually originally offered to Cary Grant, uh, who turned it down. He stated that he turned it down because he felt he was too old to be playing Audrey Hepburn's uh, romantic interest uh because at this period i believe he was in his his early 50s and audrey hepburn was early 20s maybe 24 around there so that was grant's kind of official reason for turning down the role uh but there were some sources closer to him saying that he actually turned it down because he was concerned that uh the role of the princess would get far more attention and he i i suppose didn't he didn't want to be overshadowed so i guess kind of it, it works out that we talked about an affair to remember last week because we can kind of compare cary grant and gregory peck they're they're two very different kind of leading men so last week we were talking about kind of just how how suave and charming cary grant is and he's very funny and he's got this this smirk that is is uh very warm and i feel like gregory peck is very different he has this big kind of deep voice that feels almost more more kind of authority driven uh i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you thought kind of comparing these two performances and these two actors um so i think I think actually it would have been a mistake to cast Cary Grant because he, like Audrey Hepburn, is European, right? He was British-born, and he had that transatlantic accent. So you wouldn't have had the same kind of contrast between the two leads, right? With Gregory Peck, you get kind of an all-American, a little bit uncultured newspaper guy um, up against, you know, the sophisticated princess or whatever other things are okay so Gregory Peck's image to me is less suave than Cary Grant because Cary Grant is kind of the ultimate suave you know and I maybe because of To Kill a Mockingbird Gregory Peck always has like a dad image to me but but like that said I still think that he and Audrey Hepburn had a really good chemistry in in this movie and also you had mentioned that Cary Grant ostensibly turned down the role because of the age difference. Um, although he and Audrey Hepburn would go on to to co-star later in the 60s, when obviously they would have still had the same age difference, but maybe since she was a little older at that point, it wouldn't have been quite so jarring. But all that said, I kind of just wanted to comment on the age differences between a lot of leading couples, right? Because um, in the last movie we watched, An Affair to Remember... Uh, Cary Grant and Deborah Carr were, I think, about 15 years apart in age. Um, mm -hmm. And even in this movie, Gregory Peck was still 13 years older than Audrey Hepburn. In this movie, it's a little bit even more jarring because she is so young in this movie, right? She's early 20s. Just She's just such an ingenue. So I don't know. I, again, I think they have great chemistry, but that's still something that I notice. 
for sure. I think that was um, that was kind of one of the first things I noticed in this film that um, I felt like they they established this dynamic, and I thought it was going to go in one way and didn't quite. But when Gregory Peck or or Joe Bradley first meets uh, Princess Anne and sees her on the bench, and you know she's she's drunk or so he thinks, right? And he has to go and kind of like take care of her and get her situated in his apartment and everything. Uh, it's an kind of it's an interesting opening for this relationship because I kept thinking like it is very like you were saying Gregory Peck has that kind of dad image and I think the same for me because of To Kill a Mockingbird and so when we open on this I feel like this is a very like paternal relationship between the two of them mm. uh, and I don't like I don't know that the rest of the movie really kind of keeps that up I think in some ways it does um but that was that was a little bit jarring to me at the beginning and also because her character is so sheltered that she doesn't have a lot of the everyday life experiences that another woman her age would would have already had right right so we're kind of um we're getting a a very classic romance setup that i think continues till today i think uh, you could argue that twilight operates in much the same fashion where we introduce two characters and like a huge portion of their relationship is based on the man teaching the woman right like he has to be her instructor uh and i think that you know that's definitely what we're seeing here uh which again kind of like 20 you know 2020 vision like this is not that's not great that's perhaps not a a wonderful brace basis for a relationship. <laughs> um, do you kind of also think that Gregory Peck was probably the better choice for this role? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you, I think all your points were, were totally salient. I think my first reaction was like, Oh, Cary Grant, like I want to watch another movie with you, you know? Um, <laughs> but actually thinking about it, like this dynamic would have been bizarre. I don't really, a huge part of Gregory Peck's character of Joe Bradley is that he's kind of, he's young, but he's not super young. Right. So he feels very much like he's in his thirties. He's already like considerably locked into his career, but it's not working out for him. And so that adds to kind of the, the desperation for the character and some of that tension. And I think it's, it's a little stranger if we have an actor who is, in his fifties. I think that maybe kind of turns that struggle into being like a little bit more of a tragedy on that end. And that it just, it changes a lot of dynamics that I think wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily have worked as well. So I'd like to talk a little bit about something I alluded to earlier in the episode. Uh, so I think the the photography or rather the cinematography of this film uh, is really exquisite and very distinctive, right? So earlier I talked about Weiler absolutely insisting on shooting in Rome. And I think we can really see particularly... Um, I guess it's it's about the halfway point of the film uh, when Joe Bradley and Anya 
uh, are kind of going throughout Rome and kind of the really famous uh, Vespa scooter scene. So much of that is devoted to like, these are real Roman streets and we're seeing, you know, we're seeing all of this architecture and they show the Colosseum and the, you know, there's a scene on the Spanish steps. And so what I kind of kept thinking was something that, that gets thrown around and was actually kind of a criticism that was leveled at an earlier film we did. Don't look now is that when films are shot on location in kind of locations that are considered to be, I suppose, uh, perhaps exotic, uh, a lot of times the reaction is that like, oh, well, it's kind of, it's uh, we're getting like a visual tour more than we're getting a movie, right? We're getting sh- shots in this film that I think are more interested in, again, the Colosseum than they are in specifically what Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Pepper Peck are doing. So I was wondering kind of what you thought of that, because I I think for me, uh, it's actually a really, I, I thought of it really positively. I think it, it kind of works with the film in a really interesting way. And it's kind of attempt to establish a kind of, you know, like she, Audrey Hepburn has a line referencing Cinderella specifically in the film. And I think we're kind of getting that. What did you think of this? I think that it works because because Gregory Peck's and Audrey Hepburn's performances are so good that they are not overshadowed by their surroundings. And I think that the feeling of running around the city, it's 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 like a perfect date, right? I mean, it's kind of literally a date between the two of them, but it's also it gives you the feeling that you feel when you go on a perfect date with somebody. Uh, I was, I was actually wondering, I was having a really hard time finding any information on this. So one of the big moments in the film, uh, is when the, our two leads go and visit the, um, the wall of wishes, which in the film, it states that it's this, this wall and we see it. And basically it's got a bunch of, plaques of basically like good things that happened to people uh, or I guess things they, they wish for that came true. And so I was, I was trying very hard to find out whether this thing ever existed and I, I couldn't really get any good information. Do you happen to know off the top of your head if that, if that was like a fabricated conceit of the film or, or what? I don't know. I just kind of assume it. I kind of assumed it was a real thing, but is it not? Or is it a thing that used to be there? Well, so as an example, I Googled it and I found a bunch of like tourist forums for people who are visiting Rome and a bunch of people who are specifically asking to find where that wall is. And I didn't see anyone say that it never existed, but there was a lot of kind of like, oh, that may have actually been... Someone said it was like near the Vatican or something. And then like someone else said, oh, no, it totally existed here, but it was torn down. Uh, So I don't really I guess listeners, if you have information on this, please write in. Uh, I'm very curious about this. We're making our post pandemic travel plans. Another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is the I suppose the, the politics of the film. So. I think what we've been talking about a lot up to this point and kind of like you said about this movie being an example of like a perfect date. 
feels very kind of politically removed, right? And functioning on just, I guess, political in the sense of like a human to human emotional level, but not anything larger, right? It, it, It feels very much like a fairy tale. But I think it's kind of strange because this is, again, Dalton Trumbo post the Red Scare. And that's not to say that he can't write anything that's that's not specifically political after that. But it was it was kind of so soon. I have a hard time thinking that there wasn't anything encoded here. So first off, I think we we need to talk a little bit about princess Anne, um and how she's kind of introduced to us with her you know her royal responsibilities of greeting all these strangers and like being kind of prepped and groomed to say exactly the right thing to exactly the right people and get all the information straight and in some ways like be a puppet and this is why she 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 escapes earlier on in the film and when she's sedated out on the street she's talking about how you know wonderfully happy she is but I, th- I think I'll have to admit, and again, 2020 brain, I don't know how much of this, like, I'm just really imposing on the film. But for me personally watching that, like, I could not stand that portion of the film. I could not stand seeing someone who has presumably health care, you know, wealth, never has to worry about where the food is going to come from, kind of complain about her lot in life. Uh, what I guess, what did you think about that? I guess I felt like... Because I'm looking at your your notes here, and the way you pose the question is, are we being pushed to sympathize with the 1%? Which, uh, to note, is certainly a um, anachronistic <laughs> comment. Um, well, okay, so I have a few thoughts on this. I would say, I guess, yeah, maybe. But then again, most stories about unrequited love are kind of like small fish in the sea of social concerns. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's almost like anytime you make a story about something that's in the grand scheme of things, not that important. I don't know. It's like, should we not enjoy or should we not make that kind of art? For me, I guess I, I don't really mind it if it's posed this way as an escapist fairy tale. And maybe the fact that she's, she's not, presented as the princess of an actual country, right? She's just some unnamed European country. So it's not like it's necessarily representing some real entity in a positive light, like uh, some kind of propaganda. I I mean, I guess it could be in a more general sense about supporting royalty. I don't know. Um, But then then again, the way you you talked about it, the way she acts like a puppet, that could also be some kind of subtle criticism about the role of royalty in, you know, constitutional monarchies that, and I don't know what kind of monarchy she's a part of, but, you know. Something else I think about is that during the 50s, even though there's, you know, uh, class has been an issue for centuries and it's not going away. Um, The 50s was one period in which there was much less class stratification than at other times, certainly than today. So I just wonder if for audiences at that time, maybe they wouldn't have felt so bitter about it because in general, people were doing pretty well, right, in the post-war period. I guess first off, uh, 
whatever whatever my my kind of criticisms or political criticisms of the film may be, I don't want to say that like well we can't make something like this or we can't have kind of again the the fairy tale like abstraction right uh but i i do think it it's important to talk about kind of as much as we can um and i think i think part of it too i started thinking more about it specifically because it was an american production filmed in italy which was still recovering from world war ii right and so we can see this uh, contemporaneous with this film in the Italian neorealist movement, uh, which was largely a movement about basically human suffering under, you know, the the kind of the um, the circumstances of that period under the war and like the poverty. And so I think it's really interesting that we make this kind of fairy tale. There's an American film of like fairy tale princesses and like these kind of romances that is being shot in a country that, that it's historically defining film movement from the fifties is dealing with kind of like the polar opposite. So I think also just to to kind of cap that off because I I also don't I don't necessarily think that this is like rah rah wealthy politically powerful people are great. I think it's interesting for a number of reasons and one of them is that the ending is very I guess not what we would now traditionally think of as an ending for a romance because the two characters actually just don't like it doesn't work out between them because Audrey Hepburn says that like her she feels compelled to return out of her sense of uh, civic responsibility to her people. And so we kind of see it as like, oh, she is making this great personal sacrifice. And Joe Bradley is also making a personal sacrifice for not being able to be in this relationship because he's also really worse for wear financially because he was he was originally going to get you know five thousand dollars for this piece he was writing about her and then killed it for her benefit and now he's still kind of in debt to his landlord he's in a bad place with his employer like his his life isn't really looking so great at the end i thought that I, I didn't 100% know what to make of it, but I was wondering what you thought of the ending with him kind of wandering off into into I guess, the oblivion, if, if you want to be really negative about it. I choose to believe that they reconnect at some point. <laughs> that's how that's how I I come to grips with this ending. Um, something I you know something I forgot to mention with an affair to remember that we discussed last time was for all the problems with that movie, I actually, I was shedding tears at the end when he realizes that, that she can't walk and that she just hasn't told him the truth. And then he's like, oh, why didn't you tell me? And then they embrace in the end. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I like a happy ending, and I missed it here. I don't think this was, I don't think this was a bad ending in terms of the art of the movie, but I'm, I'm just so... I just, why can't it just be straightforward and happy? <laughs> why? <laughs> so I think it's interesting because in in some ways, the ending for this film was, was my favorite part of it uh, because of how much of a gut punch it was. In An Affair to Remember, like I liked it and I liked that they, 
you know, reconnected and you get that kind of nice wholesome sense, you know, something is, is completed. The tension is resolved. Uh, but I think here, what I like is kind of, it played against expectations. Cause like, wait, but they t- really like, they don't, I can't believe that. I thought for sure something was going to happen kind of emotionally. It worked better for me because I think there, there's that sense that it's like, Oh, well the, the relationship in some ways had more passion because they were both willing to make sacrifices for each other, which like a lot, not to get too, you know, like lovey dovey philosophical about this, but like, I think that's a big, that's a big part of adult relationships and romantic relationships is like kind of what you're prepared to sacrifice. Cause that's, that's always, that's always part of it. And so this in some ways like rang more true. That they had to make a difficult decision not to be with each other. Right. Well, I guess, I guess not so much on Audrey Hepburn's side, but, but for like Joe Bradley, that it's like, he's giving up, you know, the money and like his chance to, to be with her out of a sense that it's like, he can't, she has responsibilities. And if he loves her, he respects that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, this also probably kind of reflects the attitude at the time maybe about everybody staying in their lane. Oh, sure. From from that kind of conservative perspective, maybe this ending is just is not so surprising because this was long long time before Meghan Markle. Put it this way too, even um now standards around royal families are so loosened that even a relatively conservative union like um Prince William and Kate Middleton, that would have been as far as I understand it, unusual at the time because she's she's not from nobility, right? Like she's what are she she's of course an upper class person. But in the past, royal families were only supposed to marry with other royals, you know, from other royal families. You weren't supposed to marry normal people. Okay, so just to kind of uh, round off her conversation about this film, I wanted to talk a little bit more about fashion because again this is this is a film that's really defined by Audrey Hepburn and Audrey Hepburn is is very much known for fashion so we talked about it a little bit earlier but i was wondering if um if you could kind of speak to I guess both the the fashion choices in this film, as well as the larger reverberations of Audrey Hepburn kind of throughout the fashion world, maybe in in this period and kind of, you know, up till now. So Edith Hedge did the costumes in this movie. And she, of course, is well known for working on tons and tons of films. Um, uh, She famously did Kim Novak, wardrobe in Vertigo, right, where she was supposed to play two different characters, and she differentiated those characters with their wardrobe choices. Also, she she's, she worked on a lot of other Hitchcock films, and she's just, just probably, I would say, maybe the best-known um, costume designer from uh, Golden Age of Hollywood, I would say. I'm just looking at her kind of list of films here. We've got, like, Sunset Boulevard, War of the Worlds, Rear Window... Um, the Man Who Knew Too Much. I mean, she just did tons and tons and tons of movies. Uh, so she did the costume design here. 
And I think something that's interesting about Audrey Hepburn in this is that her her wardrobe during maybe the most interesting parts of the movie is a lot more limited than it would be in her later films because she has her kind of royal attire that she wears at the beginning and end of the movie when she's doing her princess duties. But then once she sneaks out and she's running around Rome, she's just in this kind of simple, uh, you know, circle skirt and then a blouse, which is still very, very becoming. And I just, I want that outfit for myself. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, it's very, very kind of everyday, right? Kind of functional clothing. She later became the muse for Hubert de Givenchy, who's the founder of the Givenchy fashion line. And he made uh, dresses for her um, basically until her death in the 80s. And he passed away himself just a couple of years ago. But anyway, her later films show a lot more variety in costumes, right? So, of course, Breakfast at Tiffany, she's so well known for all the different fancy outfits she has. But I, I really love her image in this film because it's so simple but so elegant, you know? I guess what, what makes it, like, what makes it elegant? Again, like, I'm, I'm really, really very ignorant about this. Well, okay, so partly this is maybe my bias because for me the 50s are kind of the pinnacle of Western fashion for women at least. I just love the 50s silhouettes, so that's my bias. Even though I like, you know, like we saw in Affair to Remember last time and and, and uh, Deborah Carr had all these different fancy like daytime costumes and nighttime dresses and hats and all these things, and I love that too, but I like... This, because even though Audrey Hepburn is kind of in the same outfit for most of the movie, it's such, the silhouette is so effective that you almost don't need that variety to be drawn to it. So you have the, the cinched waist, and like I said, the circle skirt that's very flowy, that's just a very flattering silhouette um, that works on almost any woman's body. Okay, so the film is in black and white, right? That kind of makes everything look a little bit simpler as well. And then because you don't have, she's not wearing jewelry or a lot of extra or ornamentation that still keeps the focus on her face. And I think really accentuates her youth, which is a big part of the draw of her character in this. I was wondering what, if, if you maybe had any thoughts about like the uh, when she gets her hair cut, uh, so relatively early on when she's in the city, she goes to a, I suppose, a hairstylist barber. And at the beginning of the film, she has very, I, I guess, almost waist length, uh, long straight hair. And she she gets it cut into into like a very short hairdo that I don't, I'm not sure exactly what to call. What struck me, I guess, first of all, was kind of like I was very, very used to that image. We've talked about this on a couple episodes, but that idea of like even films you haven't seen, like the image that, that just kind of seeps into the social fabric. So I was very used to it, but like actually watching it, I was wondering like, is that, was that really a very common hairstyle for women, especially like younger women, like uh, 20, 20 somethings during the fifties, would that have really stood out? So Roman Holiday was, I guess, both caused by and also kind of reinforced a trend that was going on in the early 50s for Italian uh, hairstyles. So you, you had a lot of different haircuts that were um, 
popular in the 50s, but the Italian ones are these very short kind of pixie cuts, basically. And there's a lot of different um, varieties. But I think um, the one that, that Audrey Hepburn gets in here is just one example of that. But you can contrast it with, like, uh, for example, the poodle haircut. That's the one that um, Lucille Ball wears in the earlier seasons of I Love Lucy, where her hair is um, longer and tied back. Um, so yeah, this was just, uh, it was just kind of one of the trends that you could, uh, choose from at the time. And, um, there were a lot of Italian movie stars who made these, um, haircuts popular and that kind of came over to the other side of the Atlantic. Remember when she's getting, uh, she's getting her haircut and the barber, the barber's so cute. I loved him, but, <laughs> but, but he keeps looking at her and he's like, you are, you are like, what are you? He's like, ah, oh, you are a model. Right. <laughs> and I think that was a, a reflection of the association of the time of those kinds of haircuts with, um, these glamorous Italian actresses. Oh, right. Cause he does say that like after she indicates to go, you know, to cut off really, really high. Right. Mm-hmm. And also, um, people tended to think that the look favored brunettes, which Audrey Hepburn was a brunette. Um, so she was kind of the perfect fit for that style. Did there, was there anything, um, especially notable about the men's fashion in this film? Cause I, I don't watching it, I guess I don't really have an eye for these things, but I thought it was, it was pretty, I guess, stock standard, like suits, pretty, pretty reserved. Uh, was there anything that you noticed? Mostly Irving, right? He's, mm-hmm. he's kind of the beatnik character. And there's that line that I that I quoted to you last night after I watched the movie at the end, where um, where Gregory Peck's trying to chase him away, and he's like, "Why don't you go home and shave?" Right? Because because Irving has has this beard, right? And at the time, um, facial hair was not conventional for men in the United States, right? That could vary from country to country, but it was not convention to have facial hair. Uh, didn't look professional, but this uh, Irving guy, you see not only does he have a beard, but he wears kind of like very casual clothing, like basically a t-shirt. And I couldn't tell what kind of pants, but yeah. So that stuck out to me. And then something I pay a lot of attention to because I'm so curious about these kind of things is when there are hats and when there are not hats. Because if you look into, you know, vintage messaging boards, there's always a like, People are always talking about, like, whatever happened to hats and what made them go away and when exactly did they go away. Um, and this movie, it showed, a, like, a surprisingly... there. I didn't see very many hats. The secret agents who were coming after the princess, like, they all had hats. But other than them, hardly anybody was wearing them. And from what I know, hats went away at different times in different cities. So I wonder if in Italy... In Rome at the time, they they vanished a little bit earlier because in places like um, maybe big cities like New York City, hats hung around until like the 60s, right? And this was only 1953. Like you mentioned with the Secret Service uh, guys, uh, they have the scene where they're like arriving and coming off the plane. And one of Princess Dan's handlers is uh, watching them come off. And he says to, to the person who recruited them, like you were, you know, they were supposed to look inconspicuous because it's just <laughs> this giant line of men in black suits with identical black hats. 
right, right, right. They stuck out like like sore thumbs. <laughs> <laughs> right, like you said, maybe the the hat's so rare in this film, and since it's it only belongs to the Secret Service, it's all you know, like the G Men wear it, right? Something I just thought was funny was I just like the way the movie made an effort to make the characters look like really good people, right? Like uh, Joe Bradley and Irving kill the story, give the photos back to the princess. As, as a side note, Irving, who has endured nothing but abuse from Joe Bradley this entire film and still remains loyal to his friend. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, 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 he's, the, he's the real VIP. um but there was when they're at the dance right and the the agents have kind of come in and there's this big fist fight and everybody's getting thrown into water and stuff there's that one part where one of the agents falls into the water and princess Anne throws the lifesaver in after him yes (laughs) i was like oh it's so cute she doesn't want anybody to get hurt i just i just love it every everything's so wholesome Like, it's very stylistically different, but feels very Capra-esque in that whole, like, that that general faith in, like, its characters. And everyone kind of wants what's best. Everyone's trying to, you know, to work for, for something that's positive, right? So, I guess to, to kind of bring us to a close on our discussion of uh, Roman Holiday, uh, Monica, you had mentioned earlier that you enjoyed the film, but that kind of you know, films of this caliber or rather films that that get talked about to this degree have a hard time living up to expectations and that you felt that was the case with, with Roman holiday. I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit more about that. It's really, it's really hard to put my finger on some specific aspect of it about what it was, because again, the second time I watched it without so much of those expectations, I think I enjoyed it more um, and I think it's just that there's nothing really wrong with this movie, but it's some expectations you literally cannot meet, given how much stuff gets built up in your head. So maybe one big exception to that would be like Casablanca. That movie had, I had huge, ex- huge expectations and that movie actually met them, but that was like one movie and like maybe all the movies I had ever seen. I think about other movies I've watched or TV shows I've watched where I just I've always known that they're great and maybe I I would tell somebody about how great they are and then they go watch them and they're like what's the big deal and I'm kind of like oh well so maybe I think it might just be expectations nothing else what about you yeah I think you're probably right um my kind of gut instinct, I know I've talked about it before, but like, I think spirited away is the greatest film ever. Like it's so wonderful. And like, I don't know how you can overblow expectations for that thing. Cause I think it's just such a, such a precious, wonderfully built film. And like, if you disagree, I'll fight you, but <laughs> I think you're, you're right. And in some ways, we kind of, not that we have much of a say in it, but in some ways we kind of do ourselves a disservice when like kind of scrolling through these like AFI, you know, top 100 American movies ever made or whatever, all these, these kind of listicles, because I think when, when you discover something organically and it's, it's good and you like it, I think you're much more prone to have an opinion that is 
organic, right? That is independent of what general consensus is. So for a lot of these classic movies, I think a, a lot of times we'll watch them. And like for me personally, it's like, oh, everyone said that was like a nine, but I'm kind of at a seven. I didn't think it was that great. So I don't know. Like you said, maybe the trick is is that like it's worth, if something has been talked about this much, maybe it is worth the rewatch and giving that little bit of extra effort to kind of see if you can come around and kind of see it for what it is as opposed to like what it's been been told to you as right yeah and i would kind of contrast it um with you know these older movies that we're watching now when we're older and based on what other people have said about them i contrast my reaction to them with my reaction to old tv and movies that i watched from the time when I was a little kid. So specifically, I think of I Love Lucy, which was on TV from the time I was little, and I always watched it, and I always loved it. And all the Disney animated movies from the 30s onwards that I watched and I loved. And I didn't have any expectations to shatter because I just got to see them with a blank slate, and I loved them. I'm thinking of all the Humphrey Bogart movies I've seen, and most of them have been upon somebody else's recommendation. And they're, they've all been, like, good. Of course, Casablanca, like I said before, was amazing, just like everybody said it would be. But maybe one of the best experiences I had uh, was watching a Humphrey Bogart movie that was just on, like, pay-per-view that I didn't know anything about. And the name is escaping me now, but it's the one where he gets plastic surgery. But... I watched it because it was just what was available to watch, and it was great. And I just and I just enjoyed it so much more than so many of those other movies of his that I had watched on based on reputation. You know, sure, especially for someone like Humphrey Bogart and classic Hollywood. If someone recommends you something from this period then a lot of times it's going to come with the, you know, the like quote, very important film weight, which a lot of times I don't think is necessarily good for movies because it kind of almost creates this, this sensation that it's, it's somehow stale, right? Like now it, it went from being this fresh, like piece of art to a historical artifact that is like now mandatory viewing. And I think under those circumstances, a lot of times it's going to be hard to have a really genuinely like immediately emotional response to it. Yeah. And the, that movie is Dark Passage, by the way, Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall. Listeners, check out Dark Passage. It will be ruined because we recommended it to you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd like to uh, thank my sources for this episode. Uh, first off, I read the article Audrey Hepburn, The Film Star as Event by William A. Brown, which appeared in the book Larger Than Life, Movie Stars of the 1950s, uh, which was edited by R. Barton Palmer. I also read through the chapter on Roman Holiday from the book Runaway Hollywood, Internationalizing Postwar Production and Location Shooting by Daniel Steinhardt. And I also read the article Strangers in a Strange Land, The Luminous Guidance of Roman Holiday by Tom Rosnowski, and that appeared in The Writer magazine. And as always, uh, Wikipedia was a great help. If you want to check us out on social media, we are Mayday Matinee on Twitter, Maybe Today Matinee on all the other social media things. If you want to write us an email, we are Maybe Today Matinee at gmail.com. 
Next week, we will be continuing our theme of romance films with the 1955 film Devdas. I'm David. I'm Monica. And this has been Maybe Today Matinee. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.